Hello, I'm Zeb Newirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our dialogue today will be on home-based care for seniors with a focus on those who have more complex and chronic conditions. This is a topic that I have to say is near and dear to my heart. It's actually the focus of my day job, that being both senior care and home-based care. It is a hugely important issue for multiple reasons, and I know our expert guest today will have a lot to say about that. Before I introduce our guest, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to the podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues and also rate it on whatever app you're using. Rating the podcast actually helps others find it. A number of you have been rating the podcast, sharing it through LinkedIn and Twitter. And so to those of you who have already begun, as well as to those of you who are going to do so right after listening today, I greatly appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast and more importantly, to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So excited to have our guest today, Dr. Michael Lee. Dr. Lee grew up watching his father practice medicine in a small town, literally carrying a black bag and doing home visits. Now, Michael has pivoted his career and gets to express his passion for home-based medicine with the thousands upon thousands of patients that are being cared for by Landmark. Dr. Michael Lee is the chief medical officer of Optum Home and Community, as well as the co-founder and chief medical officer of Landmark Health. He has spent the majority of his career serving high acuity, frail patients through the development and implementation of innovative care models. Prior to Landmark, Dr. Lee served as the chief medical officer of Fidelis Senior Care, a Medicare Advantage special needs plan. Before that, he was the senior medical officer at CareMore, a Medicare Advantage plan where he ran high-risk clinical programs. And prior to CareMore, Dr. Lee was a regional lead hospitalist at Healthcare Partners, a risk-bearing medical group where he was the physician lead for the company's high-risk ambulatory case management program. Dr. Lee received his MD at UCLA and completed his residency in internal medicine at Cedars-Sinai. I am so excited. Mike, you have such a strong background in this area. I have to say, I'm not only excited, I'm so jealous of you and the years of experience and expertise you bring to bear here on this important topic. How are you doing today, Michael? Great. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Zev, and uh, excited to be able to share some of the experiences and some of my passion for home-based medical care uh, with, with others. Because I really do think it's, you know, just like everything else that's moving to the home, it's definitely a trend and healthcare is going to be no exception. It'll be move, moving much more to patients where they're at. Mike, why is this issue, you're interested in it, I'm passionate about it as well. Why is this issue of, of taking care of seniors, the frail elderly, why is this important to healthcare? Why should listeners, professionals and administrators and leaders in healthcare be interested in this particular topic? Yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many frail seniors uh, in, in our country and the world who uh, frankly, get you know poor outcomes just because the healthcare system is not not necessarily built and custom made for all of the unique challenges that they have, and so there's so much, so many poor outcomes, so much uh, lower quality, so much more suffering that then needs to happen. And so the more that we can custom tailor these solutions to patients, I think the better outcomes, the the less suffering, and just uh, just uh, 
uh, we can improve so much quality and so much, uh, so many lives by doing this. What do you think the small percent of patients, what do you think their contribution is in terms of the, the total cost of care in the Medicare population? And I'm thinking about the Pareto principle. Do you have some, yeah. some sort of numbers at yeah. hand? Or? I mean, we, we do focus on probably the top eight to 10% of, of patients who not, are, not only are just homebound, but also home limited and have struggles getting out, getting out to the clinics. You know, that, that 10% probably uh, accounts for more than half of the cost within, within, uh, for Medicare patients. And so, you know, by, by focusing on a very small percentage of, of the population, we can make dramatic changes on overall cost and quality for, for those that are suffering the most. In our correspondence, you mentioned that seniors, especially those that you're taking care of, the frail, those with complex chronic conditions, receive fragmented care. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, and so for the well, what we've seen with our sick and frail population is that, you know, they struggle with mobility. They have lack of resources. They don't have enough social supports in the home, and so it is it is very much a struggle for them to get out to the offices. And even when they do, you know, oftentimes the the appointments are only fifteen minutes and not nearly enough to address the seven eight chronic conditions that they have, and so. You know what happens is that it's it becomes too much of a burden to get out to the office. They just kind of suck it up and struggle uh, in silence uh, until they until it gets too bad. And then they start using nine one one as their source of primary care, which is obviously very suboptimal. They may get some a, a lot. Then they get uh, care from specialists uh, that that again, you know, there's there's not really a quarterback because you know these patients. What we see on average, they see their primary care probably less than two times a year when they really should be seeing the primary probably almost on a monthly basis. And so it becomes a very fragmented care that's very episodic, very reactive, and um, and does you know obviously provides poor outcomes uh, through that sort of fragmentation, lack of lack of sort of coordination uh, in their care. Yeah, I know in some of the literature you sent me, the number of specialists that these folks are seeing, and like you say, the lack of coordination, the excess costs that are involved, it is shocking. It's almost kind of the inverse uh, of what they need, right? They need much more primary care, and they're not getting it. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a reactive system that, you know, we're chasing after exacerbations. And, you know, that's, you know, it's kind of how we sort of tried to attack the problem uh, in looking at it. And uh, the way that when we formed Landmark, you know, we didn't start with a financial model. We didn't start with kind of, you know, it was, okay, let's start with the patient. Let's throw kind of finances and everything out the window. Let's just see what all of their needs are. And, you know, these patients are 80 years of age and lacking in, in uh, transportation and support. So we need to bring the care to them. Over half of them probably have behavioral health and social comorbidities that are negatively impacting their lives. We have to have our own team of behavioral health and social workers. You know, they're on 14 plus medications. We need to rationalize and consolidate some of that. We need our own pharmacists. So, you know, the thought was, let's, and, you know, at 80 years of age, they're probably approaching their last years of life statistically. So we need to be very, very good and, and very skilled at palliative and end of life care. And so we, we decided we need to bring that sort of in, in-house also. So the thought was, let's start with everything the patient needs. And we, when we looked at it, we saw this, a, a, a tremendous, tremendously valuable team, but also a very sort of uh, a large and expensive team uh, to deliver care kind of in the homes. And so the thought was, okay, now we need to build sort of 
how do we finance that? And the only way was through risk-bearing co contracts and being able to partner with partner with uh, health plans to deliver this sort of care almost on a capitated basis. So this kind of had the genesis. It would start with the patient first and then figure the finances, figure out the finances and and how to how to deliver the care model without compromising on all of the all of the specific pieces that we thought would drive value for the for these sick and frail seniors. Wow, I so appreciate and applaud you for that approach in that it was a both and. So you start with the patient and looking at the issues that they're struggling with and get them into trouble and build a system of care around that and then also not ignore the payment side and go after how do you actually create a sustainable viable business model. So kudos to you. You start to paint this picture and I, I really maybe kind of want to go back and double click a little bit on the clinical model. And so I heard a bunch of things that you mentioned. Could you outline in broad strokes, what are the sort of the buckets in your clinical model? What is it? You mentioned palliative care as one. You mentioned medications another. Could you march us through those? What are the big ticket items or categories that you are delivering and, and the yeah. problems you're solving? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, we, we break down into several pillars, and I'll, I'll just walk through them. You know, first is that the sickest and frail patients, we can't make them come to the system. We need to bring the system and the team to them. And so we're very squarely rooted in home-based medical care, so bringing, bringing care to patients where they're at. And it's not just, you know, Monday through Friday office hours, because that only counts for probably 25% of the, of the total hours in a given week, and our patients' exacerbations have no time clock and have no schedule. And so it's bringing care to patients where they're at 24-7 is kind of the, the first sort of pillar. You know, the, the second really is sort of social behavioral determinants because, you know, for this patient population, like I said, probably about 50% of them suffer from un, either undiagnosed or certainly undertreated behavioral and, and social determinant challenges. And so, you know, we looked at in the community, it takes sometimes weeks or months to be seen by, by behavioral health specialists uh, because it's, a, it's in such short supply. And so we decided we needed to bring that in-house. And actually the very first doc that I hired at Landmark was a psychiatrist, our chief behavioral health officer, Dr. Chris Dennis, because I really wanted to make sure that it was holistic care that was marrying the medical with the behavioral. And so that sort of social behavioral is kind of the second sort of pillar. And then talked about um, palliative care. You know, our patients, again, very, very frail uh, and, and approaching end of life. And so, you know, we, you know, as a former hospitalist, I, I was unfortunately the, the first one to have some of these end of life conversations with patients. And that happened in the ER, the ICU at two o'clock in the morning. And, and, you know, probably the worst place to have that conversation during a time of crisis. And so I, I think there's no better place to have that then in calm times, in the comfort of a patient's home, on their sofas, surrounded by family and loved ones, so everyone can have, have these sort of, um, you know, get on the same page and understand what the goals and values and wishes of patients are. And, and so, you know, I think that's one of the values of bringing the care to the home. And then we also train our providers through kind of special training, uh, get them all uh, certified and uh, training through Ariadne Labs, uh, serious illness training conversation, so that we can be very skilled at, at having those conversations uh, and guiding them through the, a very challenging, difficult uh, time of life. And, and a couple other pillars that I'll mention, you know, uh, in terms of, again, pharmacy, you know, patients around 14 plus medications. And so having the pharmacists and having, uh, we, we do probably on, you know, on average, you know, 
seven or eight medication reconciliations uh, uh, per year just to make sure that we're catching any unnecessary medications, duplicates, and really kind of simplifying some of the regimens for, for our patients. And then uh, there's these sort of transitions of care period, which is a kind of, I think the last pillar that I'll mention is that when patients are transitioning from facilities like the, like the nursing home or the hospital back to home, uh, being able to have uh, these sort of episodes of care, not just one and done visits, but a series of visits and touch frequencies and algorithm-based uh, interventions to make sure that you know, the entire team is following up on the patients in a very fragile time post-discharge. Post um, oh, and uh, one other thing that I'll just call out is that, you know, I've talked about, you know, my dad doing house calls and the pillar of bringing medicine to the home. And it's great to bring back the house calls, but I almost consider it like house calls on steroids in some ways. It's not just going into the home and laying hands on the patient, but we have to be able to intervene uh, and make and treat and stabilize patients in the home because let's face it, if we need to transfer them to the ER by the time they get there, um, you know, in all likelihood, they're going to be admitted. So you know, our model is an intensive model where if in the home we find that, you know, that things need to be done, we can check, draw blood and check labs in the home. We can check x-rays and ultrasounds. We can insert IVs and give normal saline. We can give IV antibiotics, uh, steroids, um, a lot of other, uh, we can do Foley catheter insertions, wound care, um, suturing. So a lot of interventions to treat and stabilize in the, in the home, just so that they never have to get to the, get to the ER. That's amazing. So first of all, the whole thing's amazing. I just love the domains you were just listing as you, as you were speaking, I was literally drawing them out of little circles on a piece of paper. It's fantastic. The fact that you're doing seven to eight medication reconciliations per year per patient is also amazing. I, I don't know what the average number is, but I don't think it's anywhere near that. So that's fantastic. The fact that you train your providers in palliative care, it's just brilliant. One question I, I have for you is about some of the, well, and well, this notion of this urgent care, emergency care in the home. So do you have a separate team that gets dispatched to do that? Or is that part of your core team? It is part of, it's, it's a little bit of both. So we train, we have skills, skills training for all of our, for all of our team members to be able to, uh, to be able to have proficiency to do some of these interventions in the home, because we never know when and where uh, uh, an exacerbation may occur. It may be during a, during a maintenance visit, we just happen to show up and something just, uh, just happened. And so we want all of our providers to be able to be skilled and proficient at it. But what we found out when we started Landmark was that, you know, we're, we're, we're scheduling patient visits. So we're not just doing episodic sort of urgent care, but it's kind of, it's um, also maintenance and preventative proactive care. And so we, we, we have maintenance visits and the provider schedule is going to be, you know, six, seven or eight visits per day uh, um, for home visits on. But if all of a sudden an urgent visit does arise, it kind of, you know, throws the whole schedule off and you have to spend extra time there. You have to cancel and reschedule other patient visits. And so it, um, we found that it's, you know, poor for provider satisfaction, poor for patient satisfaction who are getting rescheduled. And so while we, we do want all of our providers to be proficient and be able to do it if need be, we did also come up with what we call an urgentivist model where we have providers who 
a lot of them come from ER, urgent care backgrounds, very proficient at procedures, very proficient at uh, interventions. And we have them, you know, have a lower sort of lower number of patients scheduled during the day so that they have bandwidth and capacity to see the ER treatment, at least from the last night, the, the patient who's calling in for an urgent visit request, uh, the, the post, the patient who was just discharged uh, the day before, just to make sure that um, everything's fine. So having that extra capacity so that it doesn't disrupt kind of the, the longitudinal provider schedules from that sort of standpoint. So yeah, a bit of an intervention that we've, we figured out in the early days that uh, if you can do some of that sort of specialization, it does uh, certainly helps with the efficiency of the model as well as kind of the, the patient and provider satisfaction. So, so what does the team look like? Who makes up the team that goes into the patient's home? And are there different segments of teams that might go in? Yeah, yeah. So we, we, um, yeah, it is very much a team sport. And I think we realize it does take a village to, to manage you know, the patients. And so we break down our geographic, geographic, because, you know, it's, it's a house calls model, there's windshield time. And so we want to decrease the windshield time as much as possible. So we do break it down into smaller geographic pods. And then each pod is comprised of a doc who leads the pod. So we have physician, you know, fully employed physicians that are, that are leading the pods. The, the pod will typically have a couple of advanced practice providers and PEs or PAs kind of within that same sort of pod, seeing the, the patient panel. And then also within the pods, there is the nurse care manager who kind of owns that sort of uh, care plan. We have behavioral health specialists that are available to see patients who may have the may have the depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, substance use disorder, and then also a social worker to address the social determinants of health. And then what we call ambassadors who are like our health coaches also. Uh, and then kind of pharmacist, you know, the pharmacist over several pods. And so it's uh, kind of the, the composition of it's a very robust team kind of covering a smaller geographic area. And then we, you know, we, we know that we, we want to break down silos. And so every week that pod will get together for what we call our interdisciplinary team meetings and kind of run the list of high risk patients, patients who've had exacerbations or whatnot. And so just very sort of making sure that everyone is the physician will kind of lead some of the conversation, but bringing in, you know, all of the different disciplines to make sure that we're looking at the patient from all different angles and that we have every, all of the bases covered to make sure that we're trying to be as proactive as possible. So in your pod, you have the physician, the PPAs, the care manager, nurse, and the ambassador or health coach, the social worker. And then you've got some folks like pharmacists that cross over multiple pods. And so you're creating more efficiency that way. Correct. Like the pharmacist will cover, will probably span over a couple of pods and the the behavioral health team as as well, and then some of the social workers too. So I think that their sort of care is a bit more episodic, where they'll come in at times of, you know, at, at times of acute exacerbations or whatnot, and give their inputs, do the med recs, um, do the interventions, uh, and then kind of turn it back to the, the longitudinal team is managing and then kind of come back in as necessary. Got it. And you mentioned a moment ago, you said the word panel. And mm -hmm. so do these home-based care pods, uh, these teams, are they the primary care physician or primary care team, or, or are they supplementing a team? So they, I mean, 
So our model is not a is not a model where we're taking over for the PCP, and I think it was by by intention uh, as we designed it because obviously you know these patients they they've had their primary care doctors for probably you know for decades and have a relationship strong relationship with them. It's just that over time it's been become harder for them to get into the PCP office, um, but they there's still has that strong relationship. And if we were to come in and say, well, hey, we have this great service to bring you. Uh, but you've got to give up your primary care doctor. Uh, we, we thought that that would be, you know, something they they feel they'd have to lose something, give up something, even even for a great service. And so we view ourselves more like specialists. You know, our expertise instead of being the heart of the lungs is going into the home, seeing all the val- very valuable information that no one ever sees in the office. You see the hoarding, the fall risk, the empty refrigerators, the, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of medication just sitting in a bowl, the lack of support. You know, we see all of that. And then we communicate that back to the existing PCP, the specialists and others just, uh, as we're making the care plan, just to make sure that we have the most accurate information possible, all of the information from the home and in the environmental setting so that we can have the most effective care plan. And so, you know, we do communicate back to the to the PCPs and specialists. We can act, our social workers can help arrange transportation if that's an issue. And actually, we see we see about a fifteen you know fifteen plus percent increase in primary care uh, visits after we engage with the patients, uh, just because we're getting them plugged back into the system, helping arrange uh, overcome some of those other barriers. And so, I think um, what uh, what what quickly happens is that, you know, the, the PCPs, we're communicating with them because anytime that there's an exacerbation, we're picking up the phone and letting the PCP know so that they're very involved. Uh, and then when patients come back and they give testimonials that, oh yeah, the landmark was out at two o'clock in the morning and spent two hours with me um, to stabilize, stabilize my exacerbation. You know, I think they quickly realize that one, it's on average, probably about five or 10 patients on their total panel. And so it's not causing any sort of financial there, there's no financial uh, hit to them from from them from the patients seeing us. It's a very small subset, and patients that they probably candidly need would prefer to have extra help and extra eyes on, anyways. And so, I think we 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 quickly get the question: Hey, you know, great work on this patient, but by the way, do you think you can see these other patients? Because I think they realize that the the val- the information is valuable, and would love to extend it to even other patients within their panels too. Yeah, I think that's such a, a great point to make that you're not talking about 10 or 20% of a primary care physician's panel. You're talking about a handful of patients that are the most frail, the most elderly, the most complex. And so I think that's great. I have to say, I practiced internal medicine for many, many years and in Boston and prior to that, New York City. And it was a very, very small number at any given time, maybe 20 or 30 at most. But I can vividly remember those patients because they took tremendous amounts of time, hours of post-visit work. And, and when they came in, literally my morning or afternoon was shot because I knew that visit was not going to be a 15, 20, or even 30 minute visit that they could go into an hour. Sometimes I kept them there all morning or all afternoon, just having others in the office do work on them. And then I saw them in between as I was seeing other patients. So a small number in any given individual physician's panel, but tremendous relief and just what a great service, support service, augmentation of care you're providing for primary care physicians. So I totally get that. Yeah, we, we actually see that a lot because, you know, what, you know, to, to be able to 
uh, alleviate any sort of misconceptions that we may be taking patients. You know, we would, before we launched, oftentimes we would go to the PCP's office and hand them the list of patients and, you know, five or 10 patients. You could see them looking at the list, nodding. You could just like you said, they could visualize the patient who was going to come in in a crisis and kind of, you know, throw their whole schedule off. And you see them nodding, you see they take the pen out, checking this. And so uh, it, it, it is a very challenging population of patients to manage in the office. And so any, any sort of support, especially in the home like this, and uh, I think was very much appreciated. How do you obtain the patient? You, you mentioned that list. So how does that work? Like how would a patient get known to you? And, and then how would you acquire that patient? Yeah, so what we do is we actually work with the health plan. Uh, and so we'll contract with the health plan in a, a particular area or, or now even some delivery systems. Uh, and so we, will, we would uh, exchange claims information with them and what they would, you know, as they run the claims information, we would usually get uh, a population patient. And it's not based on sort of acute episodes like, ER visits or, hosp or hospitalizations, because that's very, uh, there's a lot of regression to the mean when you're looking at trying to figure out the value created uh, if you're going by acute episodic uh, um, utilization. But we would go by chronic conditions. And so, uh, you know, a chronicity, sort of a chronicity algorithm of certain numbers of chronic, avoided chronic conditions. And so usually it's going to be six or more chronic condition points. And, and the health plan would then identify this list, which again, typically comes out to about eight to 10% of their MA book of business. And then that would be sort of our sort of our pursuit list or our cohort of patients that we would take full risk on. And so um, it's, it's kind of a ready, a, a identified population that we would then go and outreach and, and try to engage. Uh, and, you know, the financial model is that, you know, we take risk on the entire population that is identified, whether we engage them or not. And so, again, that puts the onus on us to get to all of the, as many of the patients as possible. And frankly, the sickest, the sickest first, because there's no sort of cherry picking. Oh, well, that's a, that's going to be a, that's an ESRD patient. Very challenging. It's gonna, a substance use disorder, a drug seeking patient or a schizophrenic. It's not like, okay, well, we would just. Uh, there's no chair picking. Uh, maybe we won't engage them because they're going to be very high, you know, high lift to, to get our arms around them. And, and, you know, it's actually the opposite. You know, we want to get to as many of the patients and the sicker, the better first, because that's where we can have the most impact and drive the most sort of savings. And so, you know, the, the health plan identifies patients. We, we outreach and try to engage as many of them as possible. And then, uh, you know, interestingly, sometimes when we call to the calls of patients and say, your plan is bringing you these sort of service, you know, free in-home care, 24 seven, no cost to you, uh, a whole team. Sometimes the question is, it sounds too good to be true. Is this a scam? I've been the, I've been the victim of, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, I've been targeted for senior scams in the past. Um, but, uh, but then we start, we, we co-brand and we, um, we have the health plans also send letters endorsing the, endorsing the program. And then, you know, it's, it's, you know, again, th this is the sort of care that a lot of our seniors grew up watching the house. They remember seeing the doc come to the home do, and doing the house calls. And so it's very nostalgic and obviously very, very satisfying for them just conceptually. But then once, you know, and then once you're out there for an urgent visit in the middle of the night and when they would have gone to the ER instead and sat 
sat with uh, sat for hours around other sick people. I mean, they um, they just love uh, just love this sort of services and are very much bought in very quickly. Yeah, this is great. So for the patients, it's an amazing value proposition. It's like you said, almost too good to be true because they're not paying any more for it. For the physicians that you're supporting, it's it's almost again too good to be true. It's a value proposition. The payers that are paying you to do the service, they're benefiting because I imagine you're reducing the total cost of care by reducing avoidable utilization like hospitalizations, ED visits, and all those bad things that could happen to older folks. So your model though, your business model, when you say you take risks, so you've got a cohort of patients from the payer, and I imagine they're giving you a list or you're looking at a list of people who again using your chronic disease model of risk stratification, you're picking those people who will end up, or you all believe will end up costing a lot being in the hospital. And you're saying, Hey, we'll take care of those patients. Now, when you say you assume risk, are you taking full risk on those patients? And, and could you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So we do take total cost of care risk on patients. And so it's, it's all costs from inpatient to outpatient to pharmacy. So total cost of care for the patients. And it, it comes in many different flavors. I think when we first when we first uh, started the company, I think um, you know we, we had we had great financial backing through our, our financial backers. Um, but you know I think you know health plans are also well. It's a new startup. Um, we 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 understand they have wherewithal the financial backing to take the risk, but we don't want to put all the eggs to one basket. And so. You know, we would we would in the beginning we'd set a historical baseline of what that cost would be over multiple years. And when you look at a population that's picked by that chronicity or sort of chronic condition, that baseline is pretty pretty markedly stable over years. And so, that may be the sort of baseline that we're that we're pegged to try to improve upon. And then we we track sort of costs uh, over the following year. And if we are able to generate savings uh, compared to that sort of baseline, then, then we, we would split 50-50 kind of in those early years. And then if we didn't, if we couldn't generate savings to cover the cost, we would pay back, pay back everything that the health plan had, uh, had paid us. So it's upside and downside risk, almost like a money back guarantee that, you know, best, best case scenario, we, we help to save uh, cost for patients, we improve quality, we decrease suffering for patients. Uh, best case scenario, and and we both share in that. You know, worst case scenario is that their patients, we we pay them back everything, and their patients are received free, premier in home concierge level care twenty four seven. So it's a bit of a money back guarantee, kind of in the early days. Uh, now, as we've as we've gotten larger, and we've continue to have a great track record in terms of generating value for our partners. It's migrated a bit more now where uh, it's a bit of MLR risk, medical loss ratio risk, where, you know, patients, these patients are typically very expensive, oftentimes over a hundred percent medical loss ratio. And so we'll agree upon sort of a medical loss ratio uh, target uh, that, that guarantees savings for the plan and, and, and then, you know, anything that we are able to generate in terms of improvements in medical loss ratio um, be, beyond that, then Landmark will be able to keep. And so before it was a 50-50 split. Uh, now we're guaranteeing, guaranteeing right off the top uh, savings for the plan. And then we take the full risk. Uh, we took the full risk beyond that. 
Wow. That's amazing. So you really have developed a competency and, and a track record of success. What are some of the, obviously MLR was one outcome. What are some of the other outcomes in terms of utilization improvements and HEDIS and just what are yeah. some of the metrics you look at? Yeah. So we, we've seen about a 20 plus percent and it varies depending on kind of the markets and the baselines, but usually a 20 plus percent reduction in, in hospital utilization uh, for, the, for our population. Again, about probably about a 20 to 30% medical loss ratio improvement uh, compared to where they were pre-landmark. Uh, this is a population that uh, you know, doesn't come into the office much. And so the health plans struggle with STARS and HEDIS measures for this population. So we bring a lot of that testing to the home. And so from that standpoint, we can help to improve STARS and HEDIS for health plans on some of the most difficult, difficult patients to manage. Um, and then also a couple of measures that I think really talk to the proactive nature in terms of preventing illness, you know, because we are taking care of patients comprehensively, you know, their blood pressure, their diabetes, their heart disease, everything else. When we looked at CKD and we track patients who, from the time that they flipped from CKD three to anything higher, mm-hmm. we tracked kind of a track those patients and patients who were receiving the landmark care had actually a 43% lower rate of dialysis starts uh, than, than other patients that didn't have the services. Hmm. And so I know people, a lot of people track sort of crashes into dialysis percentage of patients who have to have, you know, emergent dialysis or, or those sorts of rates. But, you know, we're, we're actually preventing that, you know, helping to prevent the need for dialysis altogether. And so that's, you know, to me, that's, that's a great testament to the comprehensive model and, and very proactive nature. And then of preventing things early on, getting them off medications they shouldn't be on, treating, treating all of their conditions holistically, but then also treating the exacerbations that, again, could end up, cause the patient to end up in the hospital and receive nephrotoxic drugs or other things out of, out of necessity. And so, you know, it's preventing, preventing a lot of complications, downstream complications. And then kind of my favorite stat at Landmark is that when we did a large match cohort study, we looked at 15,000 patients uh, who were receiving the Landmark care and then compared them to 15,000 patients similarly matched across multiple factors, but not receiving the Landmark care. We found that there was a 26% reduction in mortality for the patients that we were touching. And so again, I think, um, talks to that sort of very proactive proactive care, but also the ability to prevent some of these even small complications that sometimes can cause that, that massive sort of downward spiral, downward and sometimes terminal spiral. And then I think also just doing end of life better and giving mm-hmm. patients all of their options as they, uh, all of their options and true informed consent as they reach those last years of life. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes mm-hmm. if they take overly aggressive treatments and their bodies just can't handle it, patients sometimes pass away sooner than, sooner than if uh, more conservative measures were taken. And so I think all of this, and I think that's also reflected, you know, we see about a 20% reduction in costs in the last year of life because of the focus mm-hmm. on, wow. on uh, palliative, palliative care. So, I mean, it, again, I think to me it's... Uh, a bit of a quadruple aim. We're helping patients live longer uh, in the comfort of their home with family and loved ones, higher quality, lower cost, and again, just outstanding patient satisfaction because this is, you know, this is a 
you know, something very, very, we're, we're there when they need us. And, and it's something that they truly believe in and is very nostalgic and, and kind of bring, you know, brings back kind of a, a bit of a golden era of medicine for them. Yeah, there was one thing I was surprised to learn from you, the 50% or more of the calls that you get or the visits are around either palliative care, behavioral health or urgent care. And I, I just have to think, I don't know, it, it's, it's hard to measure the outcomes directly of those, but it just, I think it speaks to an intangible, vast improvement in the quality of life for those individuals, their caregivers, their families. And maybe that's why you're seeing some of the amazing outcomes you're, you're getting. Yeah, I mean it's it's so true that you know the the medical maybe they end up with an exacerbation of their COPD or heart failure or whatnot, but if you look at it, sometimes it's it's a behavioral issue that's untreated or it's kind of social and financial or whatnot or lack of support or lack of someone being able to help them get the medications. Um, that if you look at the real root cause, it's not it's not necessarily medical. The the the, the sort of end result is a mm -hmm. medical exacerbation, but it all started with something very, 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 it could have been behavioral or social or just, mm -hmm. uh, just not having uh, anyone sit down and talk about the goals and values and real, really prognosticating mm -hmm. and really giving them a full picture of what to expect. And I've always found that when patients are more fully informed, more often than not, they actually choose less than more. It's only when they're scared and no one's ever talked to them and they're making sort of abrupt, quick decisions that, um, that sometimes they, they, they may make decisions that may not be kind of what they would have wanted had they had all the information. Boy, as you, as you said that, I just had this flood of images that really speaks to how radically different the model of care is that you have built. What a just profound reframe, because as you're talking, I'm seeing the way things have been and are for still for many of these patients, if not most of them that don't have your service, no one's talking to them, the behavioral health needs, the social determinants of health needs, all the things that happen in the home, those sort of discussions, in-depth discussions about palliative care. And so they'll call, like you said before, EMS, they'll end up in the emergency room and it's just the sounds of the beeping machines and, and the lights and poor physicians and nurses are having these abrupt conversations with them and with no context and they're busy, super busy, and, and it's not the appropriate time. And then they'll maybe they'll call social work to come down and the patient's waiting for hours to see a social worker or case manager. And, and again, they don't know the patient and the patient's not in their home. And so you've really completely changed. I mean, I, I've been in those conversations for years. I've seen those conversations. You've completely changed that reality from this sort of decontextualized, cold, harsh, reactive to something that is, is warm and proactive and relaxed and convenient for the patient and their family. And it's really, I mean, it's back to the future, but it's better than anything we've ever had in the past, at least in the last 20 or 30 years that I've seen healthcare. So as you're speaking, I'm, I'm really beginning to see the picture in, in my mind of what you're doing and, and just how profound it is. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I mean, I think that historically our healthcare system has been a, a bit of a sick, you know, a sick care system and kind of chasing after illnesses. And so, you know, I, I think really to deliver on the promise of healthcare and, and really deliver what's what's possible in terms of in terms of best outcomes for patients, we really have to, you know, shift away from that and get to 
this sort of very proactive, very upstream, very comprehensive, comprehensive nature. And, and frankly, I think with kind of, you know, you know, I, I'm very biased, but I do think that more of that care needs to get to be brought to where patients, wherever they are. And that's not just the home, whether that's kind of at their kind of place of work or place other, other places that are convenient to them. Uh, I think we do have, because it does break down a lot of the barriers, the more that healthcare is brought to patients where they are versus making them come to uh, come to the system. Do you think the healthcare system is moving in that direction? And I know you speak to lots of healthcare leaders across the country and in healthcare systems and hospital systems and provider groups. Is it, do you think that in terms of where we are in this sort of movement of care, moving from bricks and mortar clinics and hospitals and whatnot into the home care ecosystem. Where, where do you see us as a healthcare system along that continuum? I mean, I, I definitely see traction and I see interest. And I don't think that there's this, like, um, I, I don't think that there's anyone that I talk to uh, who are in positions of leadership who disagree with uh, care being brought, being brought to the home. And I think whether they're whether they're choosing to partner with Landmark or uh, a similar organization trying to build it themselves, I think everyone sees the sort of sees that sort of benefit uh, of it. And so I, I definitely see traction. I see movement in it. I you know I'm I'm very pleased by the the work and sort of the the attention that the American Academy of Home Care Medicine is uh, is getting um, because I I would love. You know, when I started as a hospitalist, you know, it was, I don't, patients didn't always, didn't always understand kind of why is my PCP not seeing me? And then I don't think it, you know, it wasn't as huge a choice of, okay, I'm going to go into it, or this is a specific field that I'm, I'm looking at entering uh, uh, as widely kind of at that time. Um, but now I think the hospitalist, uh, the hospitalist model, people, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's standard of care, and I don't think people would have it any differently. And has has shown mm-hmm. tremendously greater outcomes. I I, I do st- I am starting to see uh, that people are more more seriously considering. Hmm, maybe I can make a career out of home based medical care, and uh, it's not just some sort of something I do off the side, but it can be a long long term sustainable career. And I think the American Academy of Home Care Medicine is helping helping to drive some of that. And I think some you know models like models like uh, Landmark and other others similar, I think, are also giving people they can see that they can spend the time. They don't have to rush around seeing patients very very short uh, and doing high volume to to make a living, but they can they can make a living doing house calls and home based medical care and still get very you know you know, very competitive sort of uh, make it a very competitive salary and career choice. Um, But also just, you know, kind of it's the kind of medicine I think that they envisioned and why they went into healthcare in the first place to spend the time, build the relationships to really see the meaningful impacts on patients. So I'd love, I'd love it in the, in the future for people, for residents and others coming out of medical nursing, uh, nurse practitioner PA schools to say, I want to go into home-based medical care as my, my, uh, as sort of that career choice coming out of, uh, coming out of training. Well, I, I, I suspect you're helping lead that movement. I have to be honest with you. I wasn't even aware that there was an American Academy of Home Care Medicine. What is 
that academy do? I mean, what are they, I mean, you've already shared a little bit, but are they promoting this as a career? Is that, what is the, yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think there's advocacy, uh, advocacy with regards to government and legislation to be able to promote and support sort of house calls and home-based medical care as a field in terms of, you know, re- reimbursement for, for the sort of services. I think it is also educating, educating and, uh, the medical community, as well as newer grads, that of the work that's that's possible and just the tremendous outcomes and results. And so, mm-hmm. I think it's uh, you know there's they've brought a lot of uh, a lot of even before kind of uh, landmark and others they were they were shedding a lot of light on the benefits and the metrics and the outcomes of home based medical care. And I think. And there's always been a lot of work on the hill and part, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of lobbying to try to get more exposure and more sort of awareness and more favorable sort of legislation to continue to promote uh, home-based medical care. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So Landmark was acquired by Optum, and you now work at Optum in addition to being obviously the co-founder, the chief medical officer of Landmark. So tell me a little bit about that. Why is Landmark in now Optum? What is Optum's interest in this? And you're now leading this Optum home and community division and what else right. is in that division? And yeah, what's that about? Right. Right. So I think when, uh, during the pandemic, obviously home-based medical care uh, got a lot of interest uh, when offices were closed and hospitals were overflowing. And we, we, I think we had a lot of inbound interest and what we thought was, you know, if we have a, a, a clinical model that's delivering 26% lower mortality rate, what's the best vehicle to be able to not just have the hundreds of thousands of patients that we have, but get to millions of patients. And, and I think Optimum United was, was exactly that. And so we, the goal was really to, how do, you, how do we get to as many patients as possible? And so, you know, we're fortunate uh, to have the support of, of Patrick Conway and the, and the Optimum United teams. Uh, and, and I think they've assembled a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, a number of organizations and capabilities that really touch patients in the home. So from their house calls team that does the annual wellness visits uh, to be able to uh, identify patients who may need higher levels of service and higher intensity care programs, they have their legacy optimate home that allows them to take risk on for total population management. There's Navi Health, which you know works on the post-acute and uh, care transitions side. There's the uh, secure uh, their senior community care, which is their ISNIP and sort of um, their institutional uh, special needs plan. That you know for patients that are no longer able to live in the home but live in a long-term care setting. And then, kind of the landmark and Prospero, which are sort of in-home, uh, uh, in-home medical models, and so it's across the continuum. So, from um, from relatively well patients to those that have need have episodic needs to those that are approaching, you know, high intensity end of uh, towards end of life uh, care. You know, they've assembled a tremendous amount of. Uh, organizations and capabilities that can touch patients across that spectrum. And so the vision is really to pull these, com- these sort of organizations together under a single umbrella to, and really break down silos, improve workflows, improve communication, collaboration, data sharing, to really give the patients a seamless sort of experience in their, in their homes or place of residence across the, uh, across the entire uh, continuum and, 
and and I'm I'm just I'm ecstatic about the the culture and the and the people and the teams and the capabilities um, and this sort of opportunity to try to to try to pull all of those together to give the patients and hopefully even build build even more on that sort of 26 percent mortality reduction if we have all these other sort of uh, all these other capabilities and talented teams in play. That sounds like a breathtaking picture and a breathtaking mission. I'd, I'd love to be able to follow up with you in a few months or a year and see how you all are, are coming together under that large umbrella of the Optum home and community. It sounds amazing. Yeah, very exciting times. That's great. I know, Mike, we're, we've come to the end of the hour. So inspiring and refreshing and, and to just hear what you've done. You've been at this for a long time. And what's amazing is that it's not over. Like, you, I mean, you just, you're now into the next chapter and the next leap, which I think is going to bring even more value to, to patients, especially those, as we've been talking about the seniors and, and, and those are the frail and with complex chronic conditions. So just so excited for you and, and your colleagues and what you're all going to do, as well as the patients that you're going to take care of. Any last thoughts or comments before, before we wrap up, Mike? Yeah, no, I, I, like I said, I, I do think that so much more of the care is coming to the home and this sort of holistic, uh, much more pro, proactive, preventative model of care that has uh, the sort of urgent capabilities to stabilize in place. Uh, you know, to me, I think is, is very exciting. Hopefully we'll become a standard of care uh, someday. And, uh, and so just excited to be able to talk to kindred spirits like yourself who are very passionate about this space also. Yeah, you're making me want to actually go back and practice right now. <laughs> I think it's so exciting for, and I'm, I'm thinking on behalf of physicians and, and nurses and other providers, what, what a great career path. So Mike, again, I just, I, I'm going to bring this podcast to a close because I know, I know you've got to go, but I want to sincerely thank you, Dr. Mike Lee, the co-founder, chief medical officer at Landmark, and now the chief medical officer of, of Optum Home and Community. And, and Mike, every episode, I conclude by thanking all of the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. And, and those of you out there who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you're doing and, and recognize how critically important your work is for individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends, this is Zev Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>